banker for 21 years almost. That's okay. It's, it's going to fuel you. Um, it's still, I think, fueling me to this day. Somebody does a little bit more should be waiting a long time. So people are just going to have to roll up their sleeves. Try to make sense of it because there's so much information coming in and you don't know what's, what's relevant and what's not. The corporate world uh, for four years as a CEO. I'm not interested in having this small probability of losing a whole lot of money. You need to be surrounded by other smart people. Got me through the door because it's a pretty small group. And it's fine, 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 Hello everyone, this is your host Maura Maya. Welcome to another episode of the Finance Podcast where I explore the professional journey of individuals who have successfully built careers in the financial industry. This episode is particularly interesting as we will be talking about COVID-19 and its effect on markets and how this will all play out. My guest this week is Jonathan Kamel. Jonathan is an associate at Oak Tree Capital Management in the Distress Opportunities Division at the New York office. He is one of 13 American investment professionals in Oak Tree's $19 billion flagship fund. His experience extends to investment strategy focused on distress, stress, and special situations with a flexible mandate to invest across capital structures and industries as well as in public and private markets. Prior to joining Oak Tree in 2019, Jonathan was a top bucket ranked investment banking analyst at Evercore Partners on their restructuring team at their New York office. Jonathan earned a Bachelor of Commerce from McGill University with great distinction. He graduated with first-class honors in investment management and was on the Dean's Honor List throughout all years. He was awarded the Dean's Convocation Prize for being one of the top three graduating students at the university. So please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Kamel. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for being on the platform here with us. It is a pleasure to have you. Absolutely, Mara. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on. Great. So I want to get right into it. And I want to start by asking if you can elaborate and give us more of information on what it is that you do in a day-to-day working for a hedge fund. Sure. So I suppose, you know, at a hedge fund, even at the junior level, you have what I, what I think most people would find to be a surprising amount of autonomy in, in structuring how you spend your time. Uh, each day. Uh, typically, you'll have, you know, uh, a bunch of companies that are part of your coverage. Um, and then you'll have, you know, maybe, I don't know, two or three names per week that you focus on. And sometimes the focus will be, um, you know, driven by the senior level because they just think the company has reached a price that, that seems really interesting. Sometimes it'll be you um, deciding to, to do a kind of a deeper dive on a, on a handful of companies you think could be actionable and then bringing that to, uh, to, to one of your, you know, one of your analysts. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, I suppose the day to day is just, uh, it's, 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 uh, you know, a lot of research, a lot of analysis. Um, and then the collaboration really comes once, you have uh, put together your own analysis, formed a view on a company evaluation, a price target, uh, and you go to more senior people and uh, and basically, you know, pitch it. Wonderful, thank you. I want to rip up the script here just a little bit, and I want to talk about. You mentioned working with distressed companies. So, how does that look like for you, given the environment? I know we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I do want to ask that. And I think it's a great segue to ask for right now. Sure. 
Um, so there are definitely a lot more companies than usual who are distressed um, today, given you know all the the the. the I mean, I, I, I hate to use unprecedented because you probably <laughs> hear that like five hundred times a day, seven days a week these days. Um, but you know, obviously, you've had a bunch of companies that literally. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're posting like, like 50% declines in, in revenue, you know, year over year in, in like Q2 or whatever. Um, and, and, and a lot of, um, companies, particularly, uh, private equity owned companies were, you know, levered and capitalized in such a way that there was a really thin, uh, margin for error. Uh, in terms of underperformance going into uh, the pandemic. And so a lot of these companies kind of just blew up from a capital structure perspective. And it, all it took was like one or two quarters for things to completely unwind. And by unwind, I mean like they ran out of liquidity or, um, you know, they started coming, coming up to a maturity that they suddenly couldn't uh, easily refinance the same way they could have before. So our, our addressable universe has opened up, you know, before we were kind of looking at companies that were just in industries that were facing, you know, acute challenge like retail, brick and mortar retail. Now, you know, I've had the opportunity to look at anything from um, technology companies to uh, airlines. Uh, you know, I, I just think that, that, it, that my job has become more diverse in terms of the, the opportunity set uh, as a result of, uh, of the pandemic and, and the economic downturn that it ensued. So um, as uh, we've seen in the news the last few days, the presidential election coming up has really made a whirlwind in, in markets. And you're working, right. with, <laughs> you're working with distressed companies. And there's, well, we've heard um, President Trump talk about no, no stimulus. And, but there is talk, we're hoping, for a stimulus post-election. What does that environment look like for you in terms, in terms of companies that, are, that need that stimulus? And, you know, we've seen the massive layoffs. So what, what happens? What are the strategies involved? Do you see opportunities in an environment like this? Right. Well, what I, what I would say is, you know, at the end of the day, um, my firm, and frankly, I don't think any firm can really claim to have an edge when it comes to what happens with politics. And so, you know, what do you do when you don't have an edge uh, on politics, when you don't have, you know, uh, a great view on, on whether or not we'll get a stimulus uh, before the election? Uh, you, you basically just have to be conservative and you have to, you know, underwrite um, uh, companies and opportunities under the assumption, under kind of the, the, the reasonable worst case assumption, you know, which in this, in this instance, is, as you referenced, would be no stimulus um, or yeah, no, no third round of stimulus. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and that can be tough because, you know, we look at companies and we think that, you know, a lot of valuations do bake in um, the expectation of, of further stimulus. Otherwise, they make no sense. But unfortunately for companies like that, they're just a pass. And, you know, if a stimulus doesn't happen, you know, we're ready to step in um, you know, should, uh, should some of these companies, you know, outstanding securities and, and, you know, in our industry, particularly, you know, bonds or, or loans, should they trade off because the market ended up being wrong, we're, we're there to step in and, uh, 
and and be buyers buyers uh you know in 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 i suppose times of desperation for sellers fascinating stuff so i want to backtrack uh, a little bit and i want to uh, start at day one and that is uh, when did you break into finance, which I think is a really important topic um, for a lot of our listeners, you know, trying to make it onto Wall Street, trying to make it into these uh, big banks? Sure, sure. Uh, so I, I wish my story were, you know, what, what a lot of people probably uh, like would ideally be able to pitch when they're in an interview, which is like, oh, you know, when I was when I was ten or whatever, I was given, uh, you know, a, a stock in in Amazon for like seventy bucks or whatever. <laughs> but but uh, you know that 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 was not the case at all. I mean, I I graduated high school not knowing uh, what a hedge fund was, what investment banking was. I, and as a result, when I entered university, I had no intention to actually do finance. I, uh, I entered university with the intention of, of uh, doing some undergrad in some subject that I found interesting and then going to law school. So I, did, I started an econ. I started an honors econ um, because I really liked economics in high school. Uh, and then, you know, I got persuaded by some people to, to tack on finance and do the honors econ finance, you know, kind of under the, under the compelling argument that like candidly, the finance courses are not going to be as hard as the honors econ courses, which have like a legendary status of McGill for being like, you know, absolutely brutal. Um, <laughs> so I took on the finance courses, found that uh, I, I, you know, they were more interesting to me candidly than, than my econ courses and I had a knack for them. And so I started doing more and more and then trying to get more involved in the community, like case competitions, like the investment club, whatnot. And then eventually people, you know, made it clear to me that like law school and a degree in law, particularly corporate law, which is what I wanted to do is not what you think it is. And investment banking could probably better align with what you're probably after. And so I kind of pivoted from pursuing law to pursuing investment banking um, and, uh, and, and eventually, you know, pivoted to, to pursuing the HIM program, which I knew to be a great, you know, springboard to try to get uh, a good job in banking and, and then eventually gone to HIM and, Kind of the rest, the rest, uh, you know, one after the other from there. So I want to, I want to talk about breaking into into investment banking. You worked at Evercore and then moved on to work at a hedge fund. So this is, I want to focus on first what your experience like was 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 like at Evercore. Pardon, how did that affect your decision to move on to to a hedge fund as well? So if you could elaborate for us uh, on that experience. Sure. Um, so what I would say is that, um, you know, when I entered banking, I did have a generally open mind on, uh, you know, whether I would, uh, stay, uh, stay in banking long-term or pivot to the buy side, obviously pivoting to the buy side is a very well-trodden, um, track, um, that, uh, that people pursue, uh, when they do their analyst years in banking and, and two years in banking, at least in New York is kind of the natural transition for a lot of people to move on, uh, to a buy side role. And what I found with banking often was, um, a little bit of a reluctance to 
form a view when I felt that I had a view. You know, what, like oftentimes bankers, they like to, to give what we, you know, used to call, and, and I'm sorry if this phrase is perhaps, who knows, in the past three years, if it's <laughs> become totally taboo, but we used to say we would give like a Chinese menu of options to a company, you know, where it's like, okay, you can do, um, you know, you can do this, this, and this, dependent on if you think this, this, or this will happen. And we would never say, but we think that this is the most likely, you know, thing for X. And that means you should actually do Y. Whereas I personally had a view. Uh, and so I um, chose to, to go down the buy side route because I felt that that would be a way to, um, you know, harness the, the desire that I had to, to express a view and, and basically put my neck out uh, on, on an opinion. I want to segue here. I think it's a great opportunity because we're talking about the buy side and the sell side. And one of our listeners actually has a question where he was curious in knowing if it's better to jump directly into the buy side after graduation or if it's better to take those two years in the sell side and then jump ahead and go into the buy side career. Right, right. I think, I, I mean, the, the, um, the answer they probably don't want to hear is that it's context specific, um, which, which it truthfully is. Because the way I would look at it is, it depends on you know, what, what sell side opportunity you're presented with in terms of caliber and what buy side opportunity you're presented with in terms of caliber um, out of undergrad. If you have the opportunity to work at you know, an elite boutique like uh, Evercore or um, Molus, or you get the opportunity to work at you know, a really top tier bulge bracket like uh, Goldman, and you're comparing that to you know, a buy side opportunity at anything short of like a mega fund, um, like a Warburg or, or, or a uh, Blackstone, I would say it's more. Com I think I think it's probably better to to pick banking, um, because uh, number one, I mean the most the most basic thing is you you never know what you'll actually uh, make of doing finance in your in your career, and and uh, to the extent that you get sick of, um, you know, just working in, in spreadsheets all day. You'll, you'll definitely find that out as a banking analyst. And it's not going to be too late to pivot to something that's perhaps more, you know, high touch, more, more human oriented, like a business development opportunity post-banking. Post Whereas if you're to start on the buy side, it is much harder uh, to the extent that you find that this is not what you want to do forever to, uh, to transition. So to the extent that you can get a great, banking opportunity at a, at a stellar firm. I, I just think that the buy side opportunity will always be there after your two years. And you also preserve some optionality that I think is valuable. So thank you. And I do want to talk about, uh, you know, interns, uh, a lot of individuals, you know, they've applied for their internships, they've gotten the job, they've got the famous phone call, they're happy and intern season is going to be coming up next summer. So what are the most um, important things new recruits should focus on as they try to build successful careers within um, their, their respective um, internships? 
um, you know, to be to to be a value for the team. Because you don't want to be that intern that shows up and adds more work uh, for the team. Right, right. Um, well, what I would say is, um, you know, what I what I candidly struggled with as an intern is this is this anxiety where oftentimes as an intern, you don't actually have like, unless it's a really well-structured internship, you may not have much of a kind of carved out role for yourself. And you may just be doing a bunch of odd jobs all summer. Um, and sometimes you kind of feel like, oh, I'm not being given the opportunity to really show that I'm a smart kid and that you know they really need to have me. And you kind of start, um, you know, feeling like, do I, you know, do I bug the rest of my team? Do I try to get them to give me more work? Do I try to create work and like, you know, put it in front of people saying like, hey, look, I did this amazing thing without anyone asking me when it could be something that they just have no interest in. And they're kind of like, well, why did you spend all your time on that? So I, I think I think it's hard. You know, I think that a lot of type A personalities are the ones that you're that are that you're referring to, the ones that got the phone call they're going to be tempted to um, to do what I did and, and try to, you know, make a mark. But what I would say is people are most appreciative. And I learned this gradually over the course of my internship. People are most appreciative when your work is, you know, the work that you're asked to do is rock solid, reliable, error-free, what they asked for. And, you know, as a result of that, you've got to make sure that you understand what they're asking for. So you never should feel reluctant to, to, clar to ask clarifying questions along the way. And to the extent that you feel like you're, you know, you're not doing enough interesting stuff, you know, you got to just, yeah, you can nudge, you know, you can say, Hey, is there anything that I can help with? You know, I have some capacity, but I wouldn't be like, you know, emailing your staffer every single day saying like, hey, you know, uh, I'm doing nothing, I'm doing nothing, I'm doing nothing. Because like at the end of the day, that creates the burden scenario you, you, you could have, uh, you know, you described and, and people could, could in fact be, be turned off rather than recognizing that as proactive. So it's a fine line to balance between being there, being dependable and, and looking eager versus, um, being, um, you know, cumbersome to deal with because you're constantly pestering people. I want to be respectful, respectful of your time. We're running short on time. So I'm going to ask you one final question, which is um, what advice can you give students uh, on how to continue to go uh, to grow, pardon, and develop their networks while connecting remotely? Um, what is your best advice for, uh, for students? Right, right. That that's a, that's a tricky one. Um, I you know I had the I, I admittedly had the fortune of never having had to start a job remotely, and I do sympathize with people who do. What I would say is, I mean the 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 it, it, I mean I I would definitely say that you wanna you wanna have as many one on ones with people as you can when you start. So you know I I mean I I'm hoping that. Uh, that means by next summer, the opportunity to go grab coffee with someone. And it's not like, you know, the extreme lockdown that we've suddenly been put in over the past couple of days. Um, but if it is that, you know, is a Zoom call, I suppose, is, is an appropriate uh, alternative. Um, 
but having one-on-ones with people, getting to know them, not not worrying about, um, you know, when you have one-on-ones, I think oftentimes you're just gonna like, you're just gonna have like a list of, you know, questions in your head, like, oh, you know, how, how do I best allocate my time? Like, um, you know, uh, what are the most important things to have in, in you know, my analyses, blah, blah, blah. In reality, at the end of the day, like, yes, those are important questions, but those will get answered on the job. You need to set aside some time to to have like a, a human you know Connection. relationship with with these people, uh, and and so I would say like just just have a casual conversation with them, get to know them, you know, be be yourself, be honest, mm-hmm. uh, and and try to maximize. I would say you know, even if we're all still working remotely, to the extent that it's possible face-to-face still is unmatched in, in terms of the quality of the connection you form with someone. So, so to the extent that it's possible, you know, grabbing coffee with someone, you know, go, go for it and, and, and don't be hesitant to, to ask. I think that's, that's really important, the connection part. And well, pre-COVID, you know, when you go on these coffee chats, a lot of individuals get nervous and, you know, they jump through the lines, but at the end of the day, it's building a human connection with the individual that's in front of you. That is absolutely right. important. Fascinating conversation, Jonathan. Thank you for being on the platform here with us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. That was my conversation with Jonathan Kamel. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Remember to send us your questions if there's anything you want to know. These are industry professionals that are here for you to help you. As well, this podcast is powered by the McGill Investment Club. As always, remember to stay safe and stay tuned.